Ah, hello, you hardcore boxing fans. Wrong show. Sorry. <laughs> no, shout out to Porky, man. Love the guy. Um, no, look, we're all quarantined at the moment, essentially. I know it's not an official quarantine, but I don't know if anyone's been out and about today, but it's just been dead. It is just families and kids. I mean, like, it's just the, the groups of people that can't get affected by this COVID-19, whatever the hell it is. And then there's us, you know, us people without kids just thinking, right, we've got no football, pubs are dead, there's actually nothing for us to do. The one time we've all got time on our hands, most people are working from home if it's possible. You know, you'd quite like a big Sunday night, shouts out to the hangout, uh, Pagola Paddington. No, I don't think anyone can make it now, I think the doors are shut. But, you know, that was interesting last time when... <laughs> Let's just say my group and a two-time heavyweight champions group kind of got into it a bit, but nothing too serious. I think I think we're just trying to understand each other. Uh, I don't think we reached an understanding, but that happened at one of the previous hangouts. I don't think I'm allowed there anymore. Different, listen, uh, different conversation for a different time. But no, so all I've been doing today, if I'm being honest with you, is reviewing fights, you know, getting some new coaching ideas, you know, now that Fitzroy Lodge aren't really going to be represented in the ABAs, I've got all the time in the world to prepare for next season, so that's all good. And I've been doing a lot of that, just a lot of interesting stuff. I'll probably talk about it later on in the podcast. You know, right now, just want to give you guys those those quick dopamine hits of what's been going on in boxing. And to be honest, I'll probably just steal my inspiration from the IFL video feed because it's, it's easier just to to observe that, respond to that, give you guys my take on what people in boxing are saying, and hopefully it'll be mildly entertaining. I have no idea, so this is going to be a different way of doing things today, and I'm just going to see what we can go with. So I'm just going to pick clips from random videos and then just respond to shit straight away. But I do have my faithful friend Westerns with me again, so I can describe to you the drink I have at the moment, holding in my hand. I have about... A liter of is a liter about nine hundred mil of Western side. It's about seven percent. I've got two green tea, two jasmine green tea tea bags in there just to infuse some of that green tea. Give me the the kick you need because sometimes cider can kind of slow you down. I've also got some green tea and mint in there because you know I wanted that kind of that mojito feel. If that makes sense to you guys. So yeah, so I'm just gonna go through this as I as I record and as I talk. It was meant to be old Rosie, but I'm gonna save the old Rosie for something a bit more interesting because that might send me a bit doolally. So where should I start? Now I'm just gonna scroll through here. Um, let's jump off on this. What did you make of him uh, linking up with Ben Davison? Yeah, good. I think Ben's a great trainer. I think. Yeah, I think we need more young blood in the sport, trainer-wise. I hope some of these fighters that are retiring, I think they want to probably leave boxing for a few years. You know, like Crawler, Bellew, like even Quig at the weekend, they're all good boxing brains, do you know what I mean? I think the more young trainers in the sport, the better. It's also you know, a horrible job being a trainer. It's a horrible job being a fighter, but these guys have got to get up, crack asparagus with them all the time. You know, they don't have the old list. And they haven't just got one fighter, most of them have got training all year round. So, big See... That's Eddie Hearn talking about Josh Taylor going up with Ben Davison. Now, here's the issue I have with all of this. We talk about there should be more young trainers in boxing. The problem is that there are young trainers in boxing. And if you notice, Eddie Hearn never gives them a shot. I'm going to pick an example. And it's biased because he's a friend of mine. But let's take a guy like Donald Smith. I don't see Eddie Hearn shouting out Donald Smith. But Donald Smith is in how many matchroom shows in any given year? Don's what, 31, 32? He's a young man. And if you know him personally like I do, you'll know how passionate he is about boxing. You know, he will watch something. Like him and I will talk about boxing and he will see something. And in my head, I'm like, shit, how did he see that? But he'll see things. And I know he's working with guys now, but no one's giving him a break. And I think it's good for him because I've said to him, mate, just make your mistakes in the shadows. But Hearn should be talking him up. Don't talk up Crawler. Don't talk up all these other guys who haven't started yet. Like, Donald Smith's got case studies. He's got Craig Richards as a viable case study of what he can do when he works with people. 
and Eddie doesn't talk him up. In fact, no promoters talk up these young trainers. So why is this important? You're never going to know Don Smith exists unless someone talks him up. Who does he work with? Let's think. Just involvement he has in camps, Connor Ben. You see a lot of improvements in Connor Ben. You can probably put that down to Don. If you know his philosophy and what he does, you can see the little bits. You can see the bits in Cordina. You can see the bits in John Doherty. These are all guys that Hearn's going to rely on in the future and you don't hear him talking up. You're not talking up your young trainers. I'm not hearing Frank talking up guys like Eddie Lamb. And I know Eddie Lamb's not a young, young trainer, but he's a young trainer in terms of he's still kind of cresting that wave. And we don't see these guys getting their shine. And it frustrates me because I'm friends with a lot of these guys. I see guys like Adam Martin doing great things with Jermaine Brown and I, it doesn't get a profile. I see Eddie Lamb doing great things with everyone. It doesn't get a profile. I see Don doing fantastic things with people. It doesn't get a profile. Because all Eddie wants to do is surround himself with his mates and I get that on a, on a selfish and on a personal level. I get that. Yeah, why not do boxing with your mates, people you've put on who owe you? But let's make it a meritocracy because... We're not going to get the best fighters if we keep putting these fucking numbnuts in there like Crawler and so forth. I'm not saying Crawler's a bad person. I'm just saying he hasn't proven that he's a good trainer. Gallagher's barely a good trainer in the eyes of most boxing fans. That's not my personal view, but that's the view in the sport. Gallagher's not that great a trainer. So, so what do you do now if you're a boxer? If you're a boxer and you want to win things right now, right? You're a blue chip prospect as a heavyweight. Where are you going to go? McCracken for the for the link to Hearn, right? McCracken, that'll get you onto matchroom. Adam Booth, that'll get you onto matchroom. You might go the Bowers route, that'll get you onto Frank's shows. Ibox will get you onto Frank's shows, right? Now we're running low on numbers. Caldwell, Shane McGuigan. Uh, now we're scratching around for names that we'd stand behind and say you're first-rate trainers. And someone's going to say people like Steffi Bull. No, 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 no. We're talking world level here. We're talking world-level Vegas-style fights. And I'm not going to include female boxers, not because I don't respect them, but for this reason only. It's not a mature enough sport where we've seen the incentives make it worthwhile for all the best trainers to work with females. Right now, if I'm being brutally honest with you, a lot of trainers are working with female boxers because it's an easy way to get credibility. Okay, It's a lazy way to get credibility. And that's what I disagree with. So when we're looking in this country, and I'm saying, why aren't people talking up guys like Richard Towers? You know, why aren't they talking up these, these young guys? And Richard is young, because I think Richard's, what, 39, 40? These young guys who have a lot to offer the sport. You know, uh, the lad that works with Ricky Hatton, his name slips me. There are all of these guys that don't get their credit. And that's not to disrespect the, the old veterans, the Jimmy Tibbses, the Glenn Rhodeses, who I respect a lot. But even those veterans are looking going, where are the young guys to take over from us? Because their joints are shot, they're knackered. So when Hearn says he wants to see more young trainers, it's entirely in his gift to create more young trainers. He doesn't come to me. He doesn't come to Don. He doesn't come to any of the young guys. Why isn't he sending guys to Richard Towers? Why isn't he talking up Richard Towers? doesn't suit his agenda and th these are the things that frustrate the training community don't don't talk about how there are no young trainers or how people there should be more of them there's enough of them you need to put them over don smith richard towers young billy rumble that the list goes on of young guys who are out there training my guy linton shouts out to linton he's working with big joe tamboy oh i say yeah, i said it right you know, big. I'm, I watch Linton every week. I'm in the gym with Linton, Simon Rose, Mark Rygate. This is like the core of our coaching team. Shouts out to the two Steves as well. So I know what's out there. Hearn's not coming looking for that. He's not like, where can I put my guys to train? He could send all of his big guys to Linton and Linton would turn them into <laughs> some crazy Jedi-style boxers because I see the passion in these guys. But, well... Who's going to them? Instead, you're going to these XPTs and PE teachers because they've got a little spot in a, in a rickety old boxing club and a set of pads and an Instagram following, and that's where you're going. You know, I genuinely think every boxer in London should run their decisions through me, and I'll tell them if they're doing the right or wrong thing because 
a lot of these guys were trainers that are going to ruin their careers. But let me let me just step to the side for a second and talk about a guy who another another new age boxing find. I think you'll if you can remember that far back. No, now Chris Billum Smith's on his way back, and I like Chris. I like Chris for a number of reasons. Number one, Chris is an absolute gentleman. Of, he's just he's just a great guy. Chris is a great guy, level headed, can really box. Is tough, diligent, hardworking. He's everything you want in a professional boxer, and. I feel after he lost to Riakpo, he kind of lost a bit of shine in the eyes of the public, which I thought was unfair. But from this interview, you know, he sounds in fine fettle and he seems like he's on his way back. Just been out sparring Maris Breedis for two weeks, so um, I've had some pretty decent sparring there with the world number one. So uh, I felt like I've improved again in those two weeks. So I'm looking forward to getting back in there and showing the improvements I've made. Well, that says something. He's got a huge final coming up with Daughter Cross in the World Boxing Super Series to determine who's the best cruiserweight in the world. So the fact that they brought you in for sparring says something. I didn't know that. How was that work? Yeah, brilliant. Uh, I was used when I was over there. I was the main the main sparring partner. I did the most rounds, so it was uh, it was great work, and it, it it got very good feedback from them, from uh, you know Breedis and his team. They they, they appreciated the work, and it was a great experience for me, especially at the time when I didn't have a fight announced. Um, found out 20 minutes before the last sparring session that this fight was announced. Um, so that gave me a good, good kick up the arse. To... So there are a number of reasons I love that interview. And the main thing is I love the fact that Chris has just got off his backside and said, I'm off to go and make my career. And big respect to that. I think he went out with Josh Pritchard. So Shane definitely has some supervision out there. But I think the important thing is, Another boxer taking a positive step in their own development. Now, how often do you see this? Not very often. So right now, off the top of my head, guys who are willing to travel anywhere, work with anyone, it's Isaac Chamberlain, it's Chris Billum-Smith. In fact, two guys I'd love to see fight each other this year. I think that's a hell of a fight between the two of them because size-wise, I think they match up nicely. Style-wise, they match up nicely. And they're both guys who are, they're meticulous. So generally in sport, there are guys, and they fall into two camps, right? There are the guys who are just, they're not, they're not naturals. Natural is not something I like to use because I don't think anything at a high level is natural. But they're intuitive. They've been doing something for so long that they're intuitive. If you look at American football, a prime example of that is Deion Sanders. He's a freak athlete and he has such great reactions, he can operate in the moment beautifully. Then there are other people and they're meticulous it's a process. They need to go through. They almost need to boil the ocean. They need to do everything they can to feel confident. I trained a guy like that called Ross Boyle. Absolute special talent. Really good guy. And his real gift was he wouldn't miss a session. In fact, he'd be pestering you to, to do more, but you had to manage that load. But he drew confidence from saying, no one could have done more work than I have. I put Isaac Chamberlain in that same bucket. And I put Chris Billum-Smith in that exact same bucket too because they're disciplined, diligent and focused and that's how they build their confidence. And that's not to say that the other guys aren't equally as professional, but that's what they do. And it's all a process and it's all from that, that sense of I've done it before, therefore I can do it again. Whereas there are other boxers who you'll meet and they can do something in the moment that you haven't even seen them working on. But they've put two elements together that you've taught them, combined them in a way that you wouldn't have thought of, and they've pulled it off in a fight. And it's those sorts of clashes of styles that make things really interesting. And look, if you want to go back through history, a prime example is Ali versus Frazier. Ali did a lot of things where he'd just react in the moment. Whatever he saw, he'd, he'd, do, he, you know, he'd use his tools appropriately. And then you've got Joe Frazier, who definitely Philly style drilled into him that same approach the way he boxed was drilled into him and if you don't believe that 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 was a definite philosophy there was a guy is it Billy Briscoe or Benny Briscoe of Philadelphia who had a very similar style to Frazier but he was a much lighter man and that was definitely a style that was coming out of that gym at the time you know or had the same trainer so that whole Eddie Futch approach of just being able to bob roll working the left hook so now let's take a step back and let's 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 look at the cruiserweight landscape because what Chris goes on to say in that interview is he doesn't believe Richie Riakpo's world level because he's been in a few close British fights. Some people will take offence at that. That puts a smile on my face because that says wherever there's a question, 
there's an opportunity, right? So if Richie Reactpool's not world level, and I think we can generally say he's not there yet, he'll get there, but he's not there yet, who do we want to see him in with? Let's see what Chris Billum-Smith does against Nathan Thorley, who himself I don't think is a natural cruiserweight. I mean, he might be a light heavyweight who's moved up. Don't quote me on that. So you've got Chris has to show, show himself in the performance. Then we need to see Isaac do his thing as well. I also want to see what Jack Massey can do on the road back. And then let's get Richie in that mix. There's four guys there that can fight each other between now and 2022. And I'm asking you as boxing fans, would you not want to see those fights? They're the exact fights we want to see. Competitive guys, roughly the same experience level, let them get at it. Like we've got with the light heavyweights at the moment. Let's get that with the cruiserweights. And then throw in big Jordan Thompson as well, because he's kind of been left out of all of this. But he's always had that threat factor. You know, we talk about Coley being big, Reactor being big. Put Jordan Thompson in with those guys and let's see who's, who's really got it. We don't need to go abroad yet. Let's stop talking about world titles. Let's just get this domestic thing cleaned up. Let's get a hierarchy. And then the top two guys, send them. Just send those guys abroad and go, right, guys, you go and win the world titles. These guys will keep making money fighting each other. Because sometimes, look, you might make more money in domestic dust-ups than you will being a contender abroad. I, I want to talk about something that's pretty personal to me. But I think I need to just kick this off by, by playing the clip that triggered the emotions in me. A while since seeing Sean McGoldrick. Uh, how have you been? Obviously, uh, disappointing last time out against Thomas Asomba. Uh, how's life been since then, uh, Sean? Yeah, all good. Um, I just took a few months out just to sort of regroup and, um, and, um, and just all find myself again. And, um, and yeah, I'm just I'm back now, obviously, and I'm, I'm just excited to, um, to be back. I just want to apologise in advance to my, my Irish listeners, my Irish friends and so forth. I have no idea who Sean McGoldrick is. I have zero interest in who Sean McGoldrick is. He, who cares, right? Let's just be, who, who cares? It just strikes me as one of these guys that come off this MTK factory. They just find guys in the gym. And like, you know, I mean, this guy could just be a Pilates instructor for all I know. The issue I have with this is, it shows how messed up boxing is. Thomas Asomba once again taking a prospect's name. And still no one wants to put money into Thomas Osomba. And I don't understand it. I don't believe for one second McGoldrick's a ticket seller. I don't. So the ticket selling argument doesn't wash me. Why is it that no one wants to invest in Thomas Osomba? Because Osomba's a small guy. And I know Thomas. I've known Thomas since he defected from the Olympic Village in 2012. So I've known Thomas Osomba, what, seven and a half years? Nearly eight years? We occasionally message, but once he committed to being up north, it was a bit hard to maintain a friendship of any depth which is a shame but I know how good he is and if you're a London boxer and you see Danny Carr ask Danny Carr how good Thomas Sosomba is you know, there's a video clip there where Danny Carr was just hitting shadows and paradoxically I think paradoxically that's what probably helped Danny Carr become a better boxer because he saw a higher level and he pushed himself to a higher level but Sosomba's good what weight do I see Thomas Sosomba boxing I, I genuinely believe Thomas Sosomba could make Sonny Edwards' weight and I don't think Sonny Edwards is having an easy time against Thomas Asomba. That's why Asomba's avoided. Sonny Edwards doesn't call his name out. You could put Thomas Asomba in with anyone and he's still got enough about him because remember, he's a two-time Olympian, 2008 and 2012. So he's getting to that age now. I think he's about 30, 31, where he's still got enough about him to give guys at Sonny Edwards trouble. So let's see those sorts of fights. Let's see him fight Joe Maposa. Let's He doesn't get the credit he deserves because there are all these silly fucking pet projects that promoters have and they keep pushing them down our throats. I don't care about Sean McGoldrick. I don't care about Tyrone McKenna. I'm not saying it to be disrespectful. I'm just saying because no one's given me a reason to care. It's the same reason no one cares about Katie Taylor, but we care about Terry Harper. Now, I know Porky doesn't like Steffi Ball, but I'm going to give Steffi his due. Steffi's given us a reason to care about Terry Harper. He sold us a story. He sold us a dream. I'm invested in that. Natasha Jonas has worn the flag for our, for our country. I'm invested in her. I've watched Ellie Scottney rise 
and become that new generation of female boxer. I'm invested in her. I've had Caroline Dubois in, my, in the gym I used to train at. She's been in there with us. And she's the second best female talent I've ever seen in my life. And I know someone's going to tweet me and go, who's the best talent you've ever seen in your life? And the answer is Shanae Robinson. And no one will ever know who Shanae Robinson is. But you've never seen a 13-year-old girl walk into a gym at 5'11 and 77 kilograms and able to put the beating on grown men. Southpaw, long, just could put the beating on anyone at 13. No, no, <laughs> I said 13 years old. Frightening power. She had, she, she, you could have put her in. Now, now the challenge is, what can she take coming back is more the question. But in terms of the physicality she brought in attack, Sinead Robinson's the best talent, the biggest pool of potential I've ever seen. And if you're a sports coach anywhere, if you're a rugby coach, and a, find Sinead Robinson, basketball, find Sinead Robinson, train her in whatever sport, and I promise to God you have an Olympian there. I haven't seen someone so genetically suited to sport. She's like a female Joshua. Her mum won't thank me for that, so apologies. But Sinead Robinson is the best female talent I've ever seen in my life. Ever. But it's back to this point. I'm not invested in all these people MTK are kicking out to me. I'm not invested in these guys Frank Warren's trying to send me as well. I'm not invested in half the guys Matrimon trying to tell me to believe in. Because this is all bullshit. You know, we thought we'd got rid of Jamie Cox. Like, when... when when he wasn't at the level of the World Boxing Super Series and when he wasn't at John Ryder's level, you're a bit like, okay, right, the experiments failed because you have to remember Jamie Cox, Jamie Russum, whatever he wants to call himself now, has been on the radar since 2008. He's part of that Billy Joe group, right? He's part of the Billy Joe Saunders, James DeGale, George Groves group, and he never kicked on. So I can't be waiting 12 years for a guy to finally realise his potential. That's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, as boxing fans, I think I said this in the previous podcast episode 61. You have a choice now. You have the power. You, it's in your gift now to decide who you want to see and who you don't want to see. Don't let promoters feed you nonsense. Don't let them feed you guys that you're not into. Don't let them feed you guys you don't believe in because we, as boxing fans and consumers of the product, the guys that put money in, they should represent what we want to see. And I think the mismanagement in boxing has just been endemic. And I'll give you an example. Man. Like, you know, Standard Hearn just being on fire. And everyone knows I love Hearn interviews because he gives me so much to work with. That. I mean, I think right now, um, like I say, at the moment, but you don't know what the strategy is going to be from the government. They, they might turn around and say, we're going to allow all events under 5,000. Well, we've only done 5,000 tickets for the O2, so we would be able to go ahead with that. Newcastle already at 7,500. So, that so becomes, what would happen with that? Say there was a rule where you had to have a less crowd. A few quid to give you a ticket back? I don't know. Um, listen, last night we did Premier League darts in Liverpool. We had 7,000 in there. So it's not like people aren't going out to events, but of course, the bigger events start becoming a lot more difficult to stage behind closed doors. I couldn't see us doing White Povetkin and Taylor Serrano and Usyk Chizora behind closed doors. That's not, you know, it's just, it doesn't feel right. We're a sport based on the passion, the energy, the moment, you know, and the fans are a massive part of the success of the sport of boxing. <laughs> Uh, so, so there are two takeaways from, the, from, from that little clip there. Takeaway number one, above all else. When Hearn tells you that, that event, I think it's the 28th of March, so that's the nobody versus nobody. I have no clue. I know it's Eddie Scott in his debut, so shouts out to L, and I know Joshua Bartzi is back on that show. But that's done 5,000. Only. You fill a card with London and kind of Essex fighters and you've done 5,000. And I think that's the moment we realise Hearn stopped lying about ticket sales now. I don't think he's trying to pretend that events are doing anything. Or maybe he's just going to lie for the DAZN shows and then just kind of tank the Sky product. 
Because normally that's the kind of event Hearn would just tell you, yeah, you know, we've done 10,000. But actually, even if you topped off the top layer of the O2, it still looks empty. Unless they heard all the people within camera shot and then kind of top off the areas behind the back. But Sky generally likes to circle around the arena. So this is, this is that time you're starting to admit maybe the Hearn magic's wearing off in terms of being able to sell. Because if you've only done 5,000 tickets, why the hell is it not at the copper box? I think, ooh, don't quote me on timings, but I think that will be after the Olympic qualifiers are done. So you could have done it at the copper box. Probably would have been a better environment, better sit, better situation because it's a better view at the copper box if you're going to do 5,000 sales. But then you almost beg the question, if you can't fill the O2, why are you even having the event for God's sake? Just, just don't have it. And put those guys on more meaningful cards that will allow them to build their profile, allow them to engage more fans, maybe put them in a new market. No idea, not a promoter. It just feels a bit ham-fisted at the moment. So the second thing I took issue with was Hearn saying that this is about the fans and boxing is about the energy and the event. It's not really. It never was for him, right? The live event is simply there to leverage the pay-per-view. It's a whole fear of missing out. When you see an event sold out and there are 30,000 people in an arena, you try and be part of it any way you can. That means going to the pub. That means watching it at home with your mates. If you know the arena is going to be empty, you're a bit like, what am I really watching this for? You can't get into it in the same way. And I'd like to feel Hearn was being, you know, an advocate for fan engagement. But for all the years he's given us dross, drivel and trash, it's a bit late to be talking about you care about, about fan involvement and fan engagement because it's utterly embarrassing. I, man. I need another sip of this Westerns. <laughs> Anytime I talk about her, this shit drives me to drink, for God's sake. That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. You need green tea with your cider. That, that, that's my new thing for 2020. I, I feel... I'm doing something good for my body while doing something bad for my liver. Yin, yang, you know how it is. But let's just come back to the core of this. White Povetkin, Joshua Pulev, both lucrative events where people are going to be paid a lot of money. And it's where people are going to make a lot of money. If they don't happen or if you have to move them further into the calendar you affect your revenue for the rest of the year. And so Hearn is not being altruistic. It's an utterly selfish move. And I think what, this is why you need the government to say all events above 1,000 people cancelled. Until this thing's back down under control or we have a vaccine, everything over 1,000 cancelled. Because it's not just going to be Eddie Hearn affected. Everything's affected. In the current climate, Chinese restaurants affected. Pubs in general, affected. Um, kids' play areas, affected. Everything's affected. What, why should boxing be immune from being affected by the, the public uncertainty? It shouldn't be. And I said this in the previous podcast. There comes a time when everyone has to do what's right for the collective good. What's the right thing to do for the country? And the right thing to do for the country is to make sure we're not in a position to be passing this on at scale. We haven't even talked about the risk that maybe a boxer catches it. You know, I wouldn't want to fight a guy that had that, that coronavirus because I don't know how I'm going to react to it. But one of the things I did miss in my kind of just laying low from, from recording was this brewing Warrington versus Galahad rivalry. If you can call it that, because I get the feeling... Warrington doesn't care. He's, he's almost like I've beaten him once. I want to move on. Whereas, you know, Galahad's like a dog with a bone and he's like, no, 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 no. We haven't finished business. Which is quite right. Like, you know, I think I said it earlier in this recording. Where there are questions, there, there are opportunities. So anytime there's a question, there's an opportunity. Be it a rematch, be it a grudge match, whatever. There's always an opportunity. And smart promoters make the most of it. Do you actually want to fight him again, Josh? Be honest. Listen, I have to do what I have to do. I'll beat him the first time, that's, that's the thing. I'd have to do the same the second time. Did he beat me the first time? That's the thing. He knows he didn't beat me. He knows it. 
he knows it. I, I don't want to get into what you're saying, you know. He says, he says, when, when it all said and done, that says W. He says, lovely fucking W. And that's it, you can't argue with that. Right, you two, we'll wrap, we'll wrap this up. Let's watch this fight. We had to end it there, this is going to in the ring. Yeah, you're, you're, you're on TV. We've got 30 seconds. You're on TV. Barry, it's the fight that you want, though. Let me tell you, wants the fight. This second fight, he's gonna get a worse beating than fucking Wilder got Fury. Trust me. Trust me. You're in the middle of this, mate. I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if Warrington just dropped the strap. Just said, you know what? I'll unify, drop a strap, unify elsewhere, forget Kid Galahad. And the reason I say that is Warrington doesn't need Kid Galahad. He really doesn't. If you look at at what Warrington's done to date, like when you can just knock off Selby, Frampton and Galahad on your record, you're like, well, what do I need to do at domestic level? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I know people will say, yeah, the first fight was controversial. And in the eyes of the fans, you're absolutely right. The fight was controversial. But to a fighter, once you get the W, you move on. Psychologically, you disengage and you go on to your next target. That's how the winners work. So, so I'm a bit surprised at why we're still having this discussion. I, I think Hearn will struggle to make that fight because Warrington wants to unify. So he's looking at Hearn and saying, you've got that zone war chest. What can you make happen? And if Hearn can't deliver again, don't be surprised if Warrington moves on again. But it goes back. Look, I want to praise Hearn for this. I want to praise Hearn with how he's managed to retake Yorkshire as a matchroom stronghold. And in signing Zalfa Barrett, he's almost insulated himself against the loss of both Quig and the other lad, Crawler. And so you look, you, Hearn is always making these really intelligent chess moves where he invests and he goes, actually, here's where I can secure my presence in a region in the long term. And I really respect that. You know, I wouldn't even be surprised if Frampton came back towards the end, had a couple of farewell fights, and the whole Jamie Moore, Nigel Travis thing becomes part of the whole matchroom empire too. And so give Hearn his due on that. But this Galahad-Warrington thing, I just don't think it's got the fan interest that people think it has. Jesus, just conscious of time. I think we've done enough for the clips. One of the things I did want to touch on, and it comes from a conversation I was having with a friend of mine who's a boxing trainer. And we were talking about the upcoming Olympic qualifiers, the Olympics, and who you would sign if you were a promoter. And it was a really interesting discussion because we drew up a list of people who were really excited by. And one of the things I found interesting was he picked a lot of front runners, what I call, I call them front runners, and I picked a lot of back markers. And I think it reflected our respective philosophies on boxing. So naturally, he was high on guys like Siobhan Clark, Ben Whitaker, Pat McCormack, etc. And I understand that. Whereas, see, I look at guys and I'm always looking for the back markers. So guys like Jalilov in the super heavyweight class. And if you get a chance to watch him, please do, because he might be the star of the Olympics. See, I like, yeah, so go back to, I love guys like Jalilov in the super heavyweights. I also like guys like Marco Millen. You know, these guys who, they're back markers. And what I mean by back markers is they've never been at the top, but they've always strived to be at the top and they've always competed at that level. And the reason I love guys like that is, they're always working on things. When you're the best at what you do, there's it's the complacency that sets in. Because you, when you're beating everybody, you don't necessarily find out what your weaknesses are till it's too late, right? And we can use a real-life example of Anthony Joshua to illustrate that point. Because, and I speak as someone who saw the, the, Joshua, the Joshua project, and he just ran through everybody. And if you're a pro Joshua guy, you say, yeah, because he was that good. But we knew that wasn't a vintage era of heavyweights. That wasn't like what you'd had before, where you had guys who could really do it. But he still made mincemeat of all those guys. Even at international level, he made mincemeat out of a lot of guys who went on to do things. And as a result, what you saw with Joshua was a guy who was carefully matched all the way through till he found someone like Andrew Ruiz and that exposed him. And he came back, he made the adjustments, and he went again. And I think I said it at the time. Had Joshua lost a few more times on the way up, had he boxed longer as an amateur, so if he'd started a lot earlier, 
he would have been the back marker. So he did well because he became the guy that was at the back, but he went to the top very quickly, got complacent, soft matchmaking, got exposed. And this is what tends to happen to the front runners. And I always worry about that because you want all your weaknesses exposed as early as possible. And as much as history likes to rewrite narratives and so forth, Mayweather wasn't a standout amateur. No, 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 he wasn't, he wasn't. It was, was it two and one against Augie Sanchez? And bear in mind what Augie Sanchez went, to do, went on to do against Prince Nassim, not that much. So I think with Augie Sanchez, it was, two, it was a 2-1 that enabled him to go through. It was close between those two. They were, they were rivals, but Augie Sanchez wasn't that good. It's just that Sanchez came from a boxing family, and I think Augie Sanchez still coaches out in Vegas now. But Mayweather wasn't a standout in the same way that Ray Leonard was. He wasn't a standout in the same way that Meldrick Taylor was. He wasn't a standout in the same way Pernell Whitaker was. Remember, he didn't get the gold medal. And so that seemed to fuel him to make sure he had no weaknesses. And any time that he came close to defeat, he'd come back better and stronger. And so that's what, I, that's what I always look for when I'm looking for prospects who will get to the top. I'm like, you need to have taken a few L's on your way up. You need to be somewhere in that world-class kind of elite category, but I don't want you to be the number one guy unless you're someone special. And that comes around once every 25, 30 years. It's, it's, it's like me. If, if they can get the right level of trainer, promoter behind someone like a David Naika who boxes for New Zealand, even if he doesn't make the Olympics, he'd be a hell of a cruiserweight champion. So he'd definitely have to be British-based because... The Americans still don't embrace cruiserweights. It's definitely a European division. But if he got himself over, then he'd look good. And then, you know, if you look at all these guys, like the Azeri guy from Azerbaijan, you know, they've got a few Cubans there who we don't really talk about, but these are the guys that, you know, we should be getting excited about. There's a young kid from the Democratic Republic of Congo who I'm buzzing about. His name is, I think it's Peter Pitter. So P-E-T-E-R-P-I-T-A. And he boxed in the Africa Games last year. 18 years old. Punches like a mule already. So he hasn't even matured. And he's just got that raw power that reminds me of JP. And no one's signed this kid up. You know, like um, I remember messaging Richard Towers going, someone needs to fly into Congo, get this kid out of there and get him training the right way because this is as real a deal as you're going to get. He's the right age, right level of physicality raw natural power, speed, seems to have a good sense of timing. And so hopefully these next few months, you're going to see a lot of promoters, trainers, managers, just scouting out these tournaments and looking for these back markers. These are the guys, man. The guys with the point to prove are the guys you want to train because it's easy. The guys that have had it all, the guys that have dominated for a long time don't seem to go that far. And as I said it in the previous podcast, you know, Billy Joe's a prime example. I think DeGale's another example where he had a lot of it pretty easy, whereas George got the, the shit end of the stick. And look at what George went on to do. And he went, to, you know, went on to do it with a sense of hunger that belied his abilities. You know, and you, you keep looking at these sort of things. Look at the bronze medalist, David Price, Deontay Wilder. David Price wins a bronze medal, heralded, you know, he had everything thrown at him. Tony Thompson derailed that. Wilder had nothing thrown at him and fought like a madman to get to that world title. So these are the things we should be looking for. You know, you always want to look at someone who's had to struggle and has still not got to the top because as long as they've got that work ethic, eventually they'll close that gap. And at the top level in boxing, it is just about who wants it more, who really wants it badly. Listen, guys, apologies. I know this one's long, but Look, a lot of you guys are under house arrest as things stand, so hopefully you've got a few extra minutes of my company that you can endure. One thing I wanted to touch on, and this kind of emerged late last night, was the Daily Mail article where the farmer who allegedly co-signed the, the, the uncastrated wild boar explanation in the Tyson and Huey Fury 
UCAD doping investigation. And now he's saying that he lied to UCAD, which for a lot of people on Twitter is a big deal. Now, I'm, I'm going to swerve the whole doping discussion because I think I've kind of done it to death. But it raises some interesting questions because Frank Warren immediately gets wheeled out. Because you imagine Frank doesn't want to talk about this, right? Because Frank quite rightly says, I wasn't promoting him in 2015. Why is this my conversation to have? And, you know, it's quite right. You know, where's Mick Hennessy in all of this? You know, Mick quite... <laughs> <laughs> you got to love Mick, right? Mick, Mick is the ultimate survivor. Mick knows how to dodge bullets. So I've got a lot of time for Mick. So let's recap the story. The, a farmer alleges he was offered £25,000 to say that he sold a quantity of uncastrated wild boar to the Furies. And in this sample of meat that he sold them, there was contamination with Nandrolone. So as it happens, over time, he keeps asking for the money he was promised. He doesn't receive it. And once the resolution is reached, it seems that the communication goes cold. So this guy is still wanting his money. And then you know he's like, well, why don't I go to the media and sell my story because I want my 25 grand. And so they wheel out Frank and Frank's like, this guy's a liar. You know, why would we believe a liar now? And it's a valid point. And we don't know if this guy's telling the truth or not because the UCAD cases, it's sealed. These things don't get shared publicly, which they should do. It's about time these doping trials were, like any other trial, just have it exposed in public so we can see what the information is. What is the evidence? Because his argument is, I had to sign paperwork to say that, you know, the explanation was true. And if that's the case, and he's now saying that he lied, UCAD have to then investigate because then it means that there was no, there was no boar meat. There was no uncastrated boar. So your whole defense falls apart. And this is a real test for UCAD now because they're going to have to reopen the investigation if it turns out that this was part of it. We don't know if this is the defense that the Furies relied on because no one's asking the questions. No one in the media is going to ask Tyson Fury that question what was your justification because we know publicly it was uncastrated you know wild boar now if you said you bought it from this farmer in Preston whatever his name is then if he's saying he didn't it's problematic I'm not willing to damn him yet and say yeah you're guilty but I'm going to say someone needs to explain what the hell's going on here because I'm not comfortable with the fact that the Daily Mail have printed this. So what that means is he's had to show some kind of evidence. And now, while I don't agree with the political line the Daily Mail take, and a lot of people don't, and what I do know is they, they will go for their shots. If they believe that the story's correct, they'll go. It's worth remembering that the Daily Mail were the newspaper that outed Stephen Lawrence's killers and dared them to sue. So the Daily Mail has a... It, has, it knows what it's doing from an editorial perspective. And someone would have had to do the due diligence to make sure this is a story worth publishing, to make sure that they're on solid ground. And the fact that it's in the public domain, that means that UCAD will have to investigate. I don't know what it means. I don't know if you can find someone guilty afterwards. I don't know if you can punish them after the fact for, for tampering with the evidence, or do you just put that part as, as time served? And so in terms of the procedural aspects, I don't think we really know where we are at the moment. What we do know for absolute certainty is it opens a massive can of worms. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't know if Anthony Joshua dopes. I have a view that at the top level, if you took the top 100 boxers on this planet, I think about 82 of them are doping. Maybe Joshua isn't. Maybe he's clean. But if he's not clean, one thing you've got to rate about him, his setup is so tight, there hasn't been a hint of a failed test, there hasn't been a hint of a missed test, he hasn't put a foot wrong. So you have to give him that kind of, you know, you've got to tip your hat to him for actually having his shit together. 
Will I take concern when someone pops an Andrelon? It's the same thing I said when it first happened. Nandrolone is this really weird drug that, and I've heard it used in different ways. I know some people that just take Nandrolone and no testosterone. So some people just take Nandrolone because it gives you what they call dry gains, dry benefits. So you get the strength, you get the, the muscle density with no water retention. So you're not gaining that much weight, but you're gaining all the benefits you would from steroids. And it's different from Trembolone because it doesn't seem to throw the aggression at you. But without a testosterone base, it's instant shutdown. So the only time you'd want to take that is if you're prepared to go without testosterone for a short period of time. But what it also does is it shuts down your estrogen production. So actually you can't get, you can't get that much bigger because essentially you need some form of estrogen generation. I think it's like your age, I was going to say HTP. No, it's not. But it's one of those pathways that you need to trigger your estrogen production because the real physical benefits come when you have reasonably high levels of your androgenic and anabolic steroids alongside a reasonably high level of estrogen. They seem to work synergistically. Don't ask me how or why. That just seems to be what the science is suggesting. But nandrolone is such a caveman drug because it stays in your system for a long period of time. And it shows how rudimentary doping is in boxing. Like That's a real fucking backyard operation. That's like your mate down the pub just giving you a few tablets and going, mate, take these, you'll be right as rain. Now, if anything, you'd have used Trembolone. But look, it comes back to the point of if the guys at the top are getting embroiled in these scandals, and I promise you, UCAD do not want to catch anyone at the top in any sport. This is why I know top flight rugby players get done for doping. Because a fraction of them have therapeutic use exemptions. You'll be surprised at how much hypogonadism there is in professional rugby. I tell you that for nothing. And that's the real role of your strength and conditioning coaches. And that's the real role of your team doctors. What they're there to do is to fill out these forms that say, yeah, I'm diagnosing him as, you know, hypogonadic. And then your strength and conditioning guy knows where to get all the pharma grade stuff. Right? So when the testers come or when you pop for a test, you go, oh, no, no, I've got therapeutic use exemption. And the dosages are such that it's not out of normal tolerance, even if they find something in you. So a lot of rugby players essentially have, age, these are the things they have, asthma, ADHD, hypogonadism, growth hormone deficiencies, all these things under TUEs, therapeutic use exemptions. This happens. I could name names, but you know, I'd be breaching confidence. There, there are so many people in athletics, in football, yes, your favorite football teams, uh, I know Leicester City had a cloud over them about this. I know Liverpool have a cloud over them as do Man City around the use of various protocols to enhance recovery and to prevent injury. So various mixes of testosterone, trembolone, growth hormone, in some cases, some selective androgen receptor modulators, you know, all these things that happen. But here's the one that scares me the most. And it was a story I heard from a doping guru. And he's a guy that helps a lot of CrossFit athletes. And a few of the female rugby players. And so we were having a conversation and he was talking about working with some boxers. Female boxers, naturally. But he was working with some boxers. And we were talking wider about doping protocols for women. And why it's actually really hard to detect female doping now. So here, here's, here's his analysis. You can feed women testosterone because if you have too much testosterone, its effect is aromatization into estrogen. So you just become more estrogenic. But as a woman, you're highly estrogenic anyway. It becomes self-defeating. So you're taking testosterone shots to get bigger and stronger. But in doing so, past a certain point, you become so estrogenic that you become catabolic, so you actually just chew down on your gains. And so this is why if you see a lot of these women on Instagram with the six-pack abs, in parallel to taking the testosterone, they take uh, estrogen inhibitors. And so 
they end up with a lower level of estrogen, but enough that they can still function. But that means that the fat, the fat doesn't build up. You can start to build muscle, and that's what happens, right? But one of the things that freaked me out was he named a, a woman. I don't know. It's tricky. He named a female powerlifter slash bodybuilder who he works with. And he was saying she takes 1.2 grams of testosterone per year. So just to illustrate a point, 1.2 grams is something a bodybuilder of the size and dimensions of Martin Ford would probably take in a week. And these women can do that in a year. It's almost impossible to detect that. You're not going to detect that. That's going to be in and out your body in no time at all. So if you do 1.2 grams of testosterone, as a man, you wouldn't feel that. Like that doesn't touch the sides as a man. As a woman, if you're a woman listening to this now, 1.2 grams of testosterone a year, 20 milligrams or just over 20 milligrams a week, you spread that out into five, five milligram injections, you'll feel it. You will absolutely feel it and you'll feel the benefits, but I don't think you'll ever fail a drugs test. So you end up taking the the sacred cocktail where you take your testosterone base just to get the the benefits and the triggering of estrogen and then you might take something slightly more extreme so maybe a trembolone but not in a high dose because you don't want the facial hair you don't want the deepening of the voice you just want enough to get you through your training camp and to perform at your best and i know what people are going to start asking now are they going to test for this at the qualifiers it doesn't matter if you were doping for these qualifiers, I am confident you stopped doping by the beginning of Feb. You didn't really need it. You've got the benefits now. And that's the problem. But what people don't talk to these young women about is the longer you're on this shit, the harder it is to revert back to normal. And that has all sorts of reproductive consequences. For guys, look... Boxers aren't going to take freakish levels of anything. Like you're not, you're not going to be taking a thousand milligrams of trembolone as a boxer. It does you no good. You just need enough to get through camp. So it's different dosages. But if you don't manage that, you'll get your full shutdown. And you might never be able to produce testosterone again. And you'll be on TRT for life. And don't be surprised if some boxers aren't already on TRT for life. And so this is my point, you know. We've passed the line of we can bring this back in. We can have this under control. I don't think we can. Until boxing has something where every boxer is tested on the same day. Every registered boxer is tested on the same day. And we find out who's got what in their system. And then we institute a, a policy of biological passports. Without that, there's no point in talking about who failed the drugs test because there's no incentive not to take drugs at the moment. There really isn't. And that's the sad part of it. I can't encourage people to take drugs because that's wholly irresponsible. But if someone said to me, what are my odds of getting caught? Somewhere between 0% and 1%, depending on what day of the week it is. And it's sad. And it's sad because this Tyson Fury Nandolan thing is really a non-story. Because it's not anything that boxers haven't done before. But it puts into context how messed up the Liam Cameron situation was. But he was a convenient scapegoat. They knew they could get away with burying Liam Cameron. Because he doesn't matter in the wider scheme of things. No one was making money off Liam Cameron. And that's the real shame. Now here's a guy struggling to make a living. Struggling to cope with the fact that his career is over. I wouldn't even know what to say to Liam if I saw him now. It's hurtful. But for all the people who want me to do a special on drugs and boxing, that's why I haven't done one, because where do you even start? It's there, it's real, it's scary, it's, it's everything we don't want it to be in the sport, but you're not going to get it out now. You're just not. I promise you. Listen, that's me done, man. Sorry to darken the mood at the end there, but, you know, we are where we are with the drugs. And, you know, 
always got to thank Westons for getting me through another podcast. Also need to thank the good doctor, you know, aka Winnie, for the the customized bottle. So I got to drink it out of glass, which is always fantastic. Um, feels good. Fully customized with the, the Highfield Boxing logo. I mean, hit her up, man. She might do one for you as well. But I promise you, this is what you need. Nice, nice wide neck so you can just drink out of it like it's a pint glass. You know, you've got the cork stopper, so it's all natural glass. So there's no spermicidal anything in there, which is good. And that means I can just drop my tea bags in there, get my green tea hit. Got a bit of mint in there. You know, just living life. But, you know, I've got to thank her. As always, thanks to the people offering support in terms of the Highfield Boxing Project. And, you know, someone did suggest this, and I hadn't thought of this before. If you guys work for organizations that are big enough that they've got a marketing department where they do social responsibility and all that sort of stuff, hit me up with those details so I can approach people. Because that's where we need to get to next, is just getting like a consortium of people that can back this and start building. Because... It will, it will give the most amazing content because a lot of what I say to you guys is theoretical. You know, talking about why I think the left uppercut's one of the most important punches in British boxing that's never used and all these sorts of things. We're touching up in a second. But no, no, the left uppercut. How many boxers do you know use the left uppercut? You know, and I can talk to you about the key sequence and I've seen this work. And we've done it against experienced pros before and they had no answer to it. And it's literally a sequence where you, you throw the jab, slip inside the counter jab because most British coaches teach you to counter a jab with a jab. It's rare that unless your timing's spot on, you're not going to counter with the right hand over the top, especially not if my guard is up either. But from that jab, being able to slip inside and throw the uppercut right up the channel there. Not many people do that, but it's something that's done regularly in Mexico. I remember Anthony Fowler boxing a Mexican kid in the World Boxing World Series of Boxing, sorry. And he ate so many uppercuts every round because he couldn't understand how the guy just went from jab, slip inside, left uppercut every time. But you see it's those little things there that, you know, once once I have my own facility, we can show you that content. Then you guys can learn and you can understand it. And then when you're watching fights, you can ask those questions. Why isn't he doing this? Why isn't he doing that? But we need to get there first. So anyone who knows contacts, key people, good people to know can open doors, you know, just DM me, get hold of me, you know, the usual processes. Um, let me touch on some admin. Listen, while we're all quarantined and we're all kind of homebound, if you can leave a review on iTunes, be really appreciated. Uh, what else do we need to do? Listen to Roped Off, actually. So Martin and Andy are doing this Johnny Fleshlight thing. Yeah, the name's a bit, bit, but I love the concept and I love the fact that these guys are really putting it out there. So definitely get behind that because it's going to get better over time. And then I can see that morphing into something a bit more real world. Because one thing I'll give Andy credit for is he's definitely an ideas man. So get behind Roped Off. Make sure you listen to that because it's a good, it's a good product, it's a good platform. And Andy and Martin are genuinely good guys. I don't need to tell you guys that. But they're good guys, so get behind that. For all your card needs, man, hit up Winnie. You all know who she is. Twitter at Blessed With Work. Instagram at The Card King. She does the best custom cards out there. And they're all handmade. There's none of this machine bullish. Like, it's all handmade. Like, you share your ideas with her. She'll get you over the line with that. So Mother Day, Mother's Day is coming up soon. I mean, get your ish together for that. Birthdays, weddings, whatever. Just hit her up as well. I think that's pretty much it, man. You guys take care. I've probably done about an hour or so. Didn't mean to. Sorry. No, but guys, take care. Have a fantastic week. And as I keep saying, stay safe, stay healthy. And hopefully, you know, we all, we all live to listen another day. So take care. Bye.